Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Now, today we have a special treat we've been telling you about for a few weeks now. Dr. Christopher Yuan has taught the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks at conferences, on college campuses, churches, and Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute 2005, Wheaton College Graduate School in 2007 with a Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis and receives his Doctorate of Ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan have experienced much heartache due to a prodigal son who embraced homosexuality. But God has given them the grace to rely on his power to change the unchangeable and to focus on their own daily renewal and transformation. Angela and Christopher share their amazing journey in their memoir, uh, out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. It's 100,000 copies sold and now in seven languages. Dr. Yuan's newest book is Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Desire, Relationship Shaped by God's Grand Story. That's our pick of the month. And I remember being introduced to the ministry of Dr. Yuan uh, a few years ago. And I was captivated by the message of God's power and grace through his life. And I asked... Cassandra, my assistant, to see if we could arrange to bring him to Denver, uh, to bring him to our church, to equip you with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God to change any life at any time. And if you would, please welcome Dr. Yuan and his parents. America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. <laughs> but I quickly realized how wrong I was. <laughs> That night, uh, I spent uh, the night with my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, and we married the next year. I, I also assume, just because we were in love, we will simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of unresolved marriage problem and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that year, 1993, May 15th, 
Our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we shall all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife. You would have heard less in my mind. Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and a pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never been much a reader, on the train I began to read a pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very excited. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. 
I was not very pleased. I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. While studying the Bible in my church and in BSF, I also surrender my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead as our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> you see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate of dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily. But it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Some are, some are not. But that definitely is part of my story. And when I tell you my story, I have to be honest about that. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began, I began experimenting with drugs. But like my classmates, I didn't have much money. And if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit and I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, 
and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they would support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But the sad reality is many people might go to church on Sundays, on the weekends, and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career. And in essence, we force our children to do the same. Think about this. Are parents putting more emphasis on a daily basis on their children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school? Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon their children following Jesus? Nothing, my friends, nothing is more important than our children following Jesus. It's no wonder why many children who grow up in church, they go off to college and they leave their faith behind because maybe they weren't really worshiping God at home in the first place. Nothing is more important than following Jesus. But can I tell you, I was not happy about my mom's decision. She was not on my side. I felt she was on the school side. So I moved further away from them to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there, I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know, he never read them. He simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call a friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. 
Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with, <laughs> along with over 100 prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son, Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stay in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will never quit as I intercede, though it may take years. But I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I pray those prayers for eight years. And it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years, when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. 
Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is legal here in Denver, right? With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest and academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta Safety Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble more, more than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember she loves bold prayers? Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up the phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. 
Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And if I can be totally blunt with you, I was doing my best to stay to myself. I obviously did not want to mingle very much with those bad people, you know, those criminals. And I passed by this garbage can. And if you've never been to jail, they don't take the trash out every day. So it was a mound of trash. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. And I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this is the answer to some of my problems. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pre-sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple of weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The jail guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. The nurse shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, 
I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I have lived this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence. A verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as thin tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lots thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul it is well it is well with my soul with my soul it is well it is well with my soul. One more time. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me, 
there was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith and enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer, got down on my knees, and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. God began convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very little about the Bible, and I'm thinking I need to ask someone who's studied the Bible himself, the chaplain. But to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God his word and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate 
not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or, abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized several important lessons. First of all, I realized that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know that might sound weird to you, but growing up as an atheist, growing up in an agnostic home, the world kept telling me that sexual abstinence is not possible, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, Sexual abstinence, I realize, is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. (laughs) Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex, even for a little while, that actually my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. And that's true. But don't we as sinners, don't we like to add to God's truth? I added, God loves me just unconditionally. And therefore, I added, he doesn't want me to change. I know you hear this a lot from friends who say something like, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading through the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptations. I would still need to put to death my sin nature. So actually, heterosexuality is not the main goal. Besides, God does not command us, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm going to be tempted, because we all will be tempted. Remember, Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way but was without sin. I don't need to focus on whether I'm going to struggle because we will struggle in this life, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy 
even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if, if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me to ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of, Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out, writing my essays, writing the, uh, the answers to the questions until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary, and then I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We actually wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote, she wrote the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same story, same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. And the best part is how God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. Our book, Praise the Lord. Our book now is in seven different languages, including Spanish, Chinese, Korean. And in the back of this book is a free eight-week discussion guide that we found out that several Christian high schools are using as a textbook. I mean, we never thought a testimony would be a textbook, but it actually makes sense. Because I hope you realize this, our youth are being flooded with resources on sexuality. I hope you realize that all from a non-Christian worldview. And yet oftentimes as adults, we do little or nothing about it. Little or nothing about it. If you think back when you grew up, how did you first hear about sex? If it was from your parents, praise the Lord. But in most situations it wasn't. It was from the world, from your peers, from media. Do you know the job to teach sex education should never have belonged in the hands of the public schools? 
And I'm going to add something as well. The primary responsibility to teach your kids about sex and sexuality does not rest primarily in the hands of the youth pastor and youth leaders. Amen. I don't know if you heard me. Youth pastors, youth leaders, they will talk about sex. And parents, you shouldn't complain about it. Where else will they hear about biblical sexuality? Not from Hollywood. I guarantee you that. We will talk about sex and sexuality, but it should be supplemental. Unfortunately, it's oftentimes the only place that youth hear about sex, Christian youth hear about sex and sexuality. Let's change that. Amen? Let's change that. And too often, maybe the mothers might talk about it, but the men say nothing. Let's also change that. Let's also change that, men. Man up. We need to. Be the head of the household and be the father that teaches our kids about biblical ways. Amen? Amen. That's the primary, you know, the primary responsibility to teach sex and sexuality. It's not the public schools, not the youth pastor's job, not speakers like me, not our job. That's not our primary responsibility. You know whose primary responsibility it is? Parents. And you know who else? Grandparents. You know why? Grandparents, you got a lot of time on your hands. (laughs) If you think about it, those parents, they're so busy. And you you might think, grandparents, I'm done raising kids. I'm I'm done to, you know, I'm just going to spoil my grandkids. Okay, spoil your grandkids, but also add to that, talk to them about sexuality. Think back when you were teenagers, how much did you listen to your parents? Maybe grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your children than, or to your grandchildren than the parents do. Are you using that for the glory of God or are we wasting it? Amen? We have to talk about sexuality frankly with our kids and not Don't just say it's bad, because that's not true. Sex is not bad. And it's not true, don't do it. Sex is good to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. We need to tell our kids about this. When we were talking about this at at a a smaller church uh, in Oklahoma, of all places, rural Oklahoma, we finished talking and this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table. <laughs> and she said, I want 10 books. I was like, wow, you just need one. No young man, I need 10. She said, one for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail every one of them a book. I'm going to read it with them and I'm going to discuss it with them. That's a grandmother that's actually taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to equip our children on sexuality. We have forfeited to the world. It's time we take it back. It's time we take it back. (laughs) 
my next book, uh, I'm sorry, my newest book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel is to talk about the goodness of sexuality because too often we hear about bad, don't do this, don't do that, and that's important. But we cannot build Christian life simple upon what you should not do. We need to know why. What's the goodness? Why marriage between a man and a woman? Why is singleness still good? So I talked about this in my new book, Holy Sexuality, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Because I think it is so important for us to realize that all of us, because of our own sin and sin nature, our sexuality is broken, all of us, and we all need Christ. That is why holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage is good news for all. We need to talk about sex because silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then as if that wasn't a big enough blessing to be in a ministry, two-generational ministry with my parents, God has a sense of humor. How many of you guys know God has a sense of humor? Because he's brought me back to Moody, where I'm now teaching in the Bible and theology department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done, He has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. As the youth, as the, um, the praise team comes up, you know, I look back upon my life, years, decades, far apart from Christ. I see a lot of bad decisions that I made. Some of them resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But you know, I realized something. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But do you know it took contracting HIV for me to realize a profound truth? That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know this world we live in today? It's a crazy world. Threat of war, threat of nuclear war, terrorism, orphans, widows, tsunamis, earthquakes. When I look at the world today, I know this world doesn't need another good Christian, a good Christian who might go to church every weekend, a good, nice person in the eyes of man, but doing little for the kingdom of God. This world doesn't need another good Christian. But what this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. Do you know we all have been given one life, only one life to live, to give Him glory? 
God created you for greatness. You may not feel great because that's measuring greatness in the eyes of man. Greatness that says, oh, look at how great I am, lording over people. That's worldly greatness. I'm not talking about that type of greatness. I'm talking about godly greatness. I'm talking about greatness in the eyes of God, which means being the least of these, which means not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because whether you're ready or not, in the blink of an eye, every one of us will stand one day before our God, our Creator. And my hope, my prayer, is that He can look at you in the eyes, face to face, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Would you rise to your feet? Let's pray. Before I pray, I want to challenge. Challenge women, challenge men. If God has touched you today about being holy, maybe you've been straining to be holy on your own strength. And it's been hard. And you want to give up. Fall on your face before a holy God and let Jesus battle for you. If you want to be holy and continue pursuing holiness, I want you to just raise your hand right where you're at and say, oh God, I surrender to you. I am not able to be holy. You are the only holy one. God, make me holy. Give me victory over my own sin. Raise your hand. I want to be holy. God, I thank you for these women and men. I thank you for these men who raise their hands and say, I want to be holy. Holy in our business. Holy in our thoughts. Holy in our homes. Holy in our walk. Holy in our sexuality. Lord, we surrender it all to you. And I also want to ask if there's anyone here, if you're a mom, maybe you're a dad, maybe you aren't yet even married, or maybe you are married and you don't have children yet, and maybe you want to be a mom or dad. I wonder if anyone here today wants to be a parent who raises up this generation not wondering what biblical sexuality is, but being confident in what biblical sexuality is. If that is you today, I want you to raise your hand. I want to see an army of people who will raise up this generation, not floundering, not floundering in a sea of confusion on sexuality, but is going to raise them. Is there any grandparents today that says, I want to teach my grandchildren? Grandchildren, maybe even that their parents have walked away, but I'm, I want you to commit. Raise your hand this morning. Oh, God, I thank you for the people here this morning, oh, God. They are the ones that you love. And, Lord, I pray that we would be a generation of parents, adults, of grandparents that will no longer be silent, no longer be silent, oh, God. 
that we would, by your power, by your Holy Spirit, speak in truth and in grace about the beauty of your word, the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of biblical sexuality for your glory. God, I pray that we would be great. Help us to count our days. And we ask this in the beautiful, matchless name of your son, Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.